Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. I often say that disease is a normal and expected result of our adaptive mechanisms simply trying to cope with our lifestyle. In short, our culture has hijacked our evolution. And I like to underscore this concept by leveraging my great, 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 great grandfather times 600 who lived as a hunter-gatherer in 10,321 BC in the area of East Africa that we now call Kenya. Now, his name was Fedge Ansark, which somewhat unimaginatively is my name spelled backwards. Now, Fedge's lifestyle and ecosystem mirrored those of hundreds of generations before him. And across vast swaths of time, human biology evolved in relationship to its environment. Now, I have virtually the same exact biology as Fedge, maybe a closer shave, but our cultural conditions could not be more different. Now, this change in culture has created evolutionary mismatches. Our hard-wrought advantages have now become disadvantageous. Now, there are many, many examples of how culture has rendered the adaptive maladaptive. And today, I explore the human relationship with light. I dive into many of the ancient health-conferring aspects of being exposed to the right amount of light and the right kind of light at the right times. I will also outline how our modern rapport with light, both artificial and natural light, leads to a variety of negative physiological, and psychological conditions. And I will introduce protocols related to deliberate light therapy that can realign you with your adaptive mechanisms and lead to greater well-being. And I will try to accomplish this in a light-hearted manner. Now, let me begin with a guilty pleasure, an admission I love movies. I absolutely adore documentaries and good TV series. Uh, Skylar and I were members of Netflix when they used to send you those red DVD containing envelopes via snail mail. Now it seems like eons ago that two flirtatious hours of Kate Hudson and Matthew McConaughey would be delivered right to our mail slot. Now it's Pretty difficult to grok the scale of evolutionary history when I can barely remember the era of mail order rom-coms. But at that point, probably like you, I never dreamed of the day that I could simply queue up How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days or Fool's Gold on a whim. Of course, now there are hundreds of platforms that offer every conceivable movie, documentary, sporting event, and TV series on an on-demand and 24-7 basis. And of course, it's just too tempting. I mean, you're tired. It's been a long day. You're full from dinner. Just one episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm before bed, or maybe two. After all, it's pretty, pretty, pretty good. <laughs> Watching Larry David uh, hysterically step in his own shit seems innocuous enough, but upon greater inspection, it's not just his awkward hilarity 
that might be impeding your sleep. So let's go back 12,000 years or so and examine the conditions in which our bodies were engineered. So the sunrise generally served as Fedge's alarm clock. Of course, this was somewhat dependent on season, but it was not uncommon for Fedge to rouse at the first crack of light. And of course, Fedge did not have blackout curtains on his hut and often slept outside. So his exposure to morning light was a customary part of his life. Now, this habitual contact with early morning sunlight informed certain adaptations. Light exists across a wave spectrum. Now, humans can see visible light across a sliver of that spectrum between ultraviolet and infrared, or between approximately 400 and 700 nanometers. In the morning, when the sun is low, there is a greater prevalence of a slice of the visible light spectrum closer to ultraviolet known as blue light. Now, blue light exists between 380 and 500 nanometers. Now, I'll go deeper into the mechanism of how light impacts physiology in a bit, but here's a little primer. When humans take in morning light, blue light radiation enters the eye and interacts with specialized neurons in the inferior part of the retina. Now, these cells are known as intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells. <laughs> uh, these sensory neurons evolved in the lower part of the retina because light from the sun is coming from above. Uh, these cells send a message to your body's timekeeper, two wee nodes just above the roof of your mouth known as the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Now, these nuclei are responsible for setting your circadian clock. Circa means approximately, and dia means day. So circadian means approximately a day. The suprachiasmatic nucleus regulates the flow of hormones in your body across approximately a day. Now, specifically, it signals the pineal gland to produce and secrete the hormone melatonin at a certain time. A melatonin naturally induces grogginess. Now, when your eyes get blue light in the morning, your circadian clock is set such that about 12 to 14 hours later, melatonin will begin to pulse through your bloodstream and usher you off to la la land. Now, the morning time is generally characterized by a rise in melatonin's hormonal foil, cortisol, which contributes to the feeling of alertness that you want as you begin your day. So let's take a brief detour here to explore the yin-yang hormonal relationship between melatonin and cortisol. Now, cortisol is a steroid hormone produced in the adrenal glands here above the kidneys derived from cholesterol and insoluble in blood. Cortisol levels bottom out 
around midnight and rise naturally in the morning, triggering a flood of glucose that supplies an immediate energy source to your large muscles. And this helps you get your sleepy head out of bed. Now, cortisol levels decline across the course of the day, sometimes with like little mini peaks in the late afternoon. So cortisol is on a hormonal teeter-totter with melatonin. In a balanced system, melatonin secretion increases soon after the onset of darkness, eliciting a sensation of sleepiness that propels you towards your pajama drawer and recumbency. Our melatonin typically summits in the middle of the night between 2 and 4 a.m. and gradually dips during the second half of the night as cortisol is rising. Now, the dance between these two hormones are representative of the counterposing forces that exist in so many systems of the body. The equilibrium between cortisol and melatonin is essential for maintaining a healthy wake-sleep cycle. So as the sun set and darkness pervaded, Fedge and his fellow villagers would congregate socially and commune around a roaring fire. The flames of the fire emit amber light closer to the infrared spectrum. And because the fire pit is at ground level, light is being received in the superior part of the retina. Morning light triggers an endocrine response that sets our circadian rhythm, but the evening light has little to no impact. And this is not by mistake. This mechanism evolved as an advantage to maximize alertness during the day and induce sleep at night. Miracle, right? But yet again, this adaptive mechanism has been upended by the tantalizing lure of Netflix. Now, the glow discharged from your laptop or iPad is blue light. Viewing blue light at night is upsetting your hormonal balance as the confused suprachiasmatic nucleus doesn't know morning from night except by dint of the signals it receives from the neurons in your retina. The result is, as the Beastie Boys once rapped, no sleep till Brooklyn or anywhere else. One in every three Americans reports symptoms of insomnia, and 10% have chronic insomnia disorder, which occurs at least three times per week for at least three months. I was once there, and it sucked. Of course, Larry David cannot be blamed for the global scourge of insomnia. Stress, sleep apnea, alcohol, and caffeine overconsumption can also contribute to poor and disrupted sleep. So what are the knock-on impacts of poor sleep? Well, the answer to that question requires an entire episode or maybe five, but here is a brief glimpse. The cumulative long-term effects of sleep loss and sleep disorders have been associated with a wide range of deleterious health consequences, including an increased risk of hypertension, diabetes, obesity, depression, and cardiovascular disease. And we also know that memory consolidation appears to take place during REM sleep, the second half of the 
sleep cycle. But we don't completely understand the mechanism there. Sleep also activates the glymphatic system, the brain's version of the lymphatic system that is responsible for repair of brain tissues. Now, this glymph is responsible, among other things, for cleaning out beta amyloid proteins that are highly associated with Alzheimer's disease. Now, there are many mysteries regarding sleep. Now, at first glance, it doesn't appear particularly adaptive. Now, we're not procreating, we're not eating, and in slumber, we are susceptible to predation. That said, when we disrupt our circadian balance and our homeostatic drive towards sleep, disease knocks at the door. And all of the conditions elicited by disrupted sleep, from disease to mere daily crankiness, should curb your enthusiasm. Okay, so let's take a deeper look into the nature of light. The sun will come up tomorrow. A little orphan Annie, among others, offered us this optimistic reminder. Indeed, light is one of the few things that we can count on. It gives dependably and unconditionally, and it requires no ether or anything else to carry it. It has a singular gear that propels it constantly at 186, 300 miles per second. Now, photons are units of light that hurtle toward Earth as a product of the fusion of hydrogen nuclei in the sun. That's one way travel time of a quanta from sun to Earth is approximately eight minutes and 20 seconds. Now, if you were vacationing on Jupiter, there's nothing I'd recommend given the average surface temperature it's about negative 166 degrees Fahrenheit, you'd need to wait an additional 35 minutes to observe that same light packet. And in that, you've basically just grokked the theory of relativity. Now, light is measured in lux, which is Latin for light. It is a relatively quaint and antiquated metric. One lux is equivalent to the illumination that would exist on a surface, all points of which are one meter from the flame of a candle. So a fully overcast sky at sunrise is about 40 lux. The brightest midday sunlight has over 100,000 lux. The ambient illumination of the sky at sunrise on a clear day hovers around 400 lux. So humans evolved with sunlight. Our physiology responds to light in myriad ways, depending on the kind of light. Now, light exists across a wavelength spectrum measured in nanometers, or one billionth of a meter. Now, on one side of the spectrum, there is ultraviolet radiation, commonly referred to as UVC, UVB, and UVA, spanning the distance between 100 and 400 nanometers. And on the other wing of the spectrum, we have infrared radiation. And infrared light has wavelengths longer than ultraviolet or visible light, but shorter than those of terahertz radiation microwaves, for example. And more specifically, infrared light encompasses the following wavelength ranges. There is near infrared 
and that ranges from about 760 nanometers to 1400 nanometers. Short wavelength infrared ranges from about 1400 to 3000 nanometers. Mid wavelength infrared ranges from 3000 to 8000 nanometers. Long wavelength infrared ranges from about 8,000 nanometers to 15,000 nanometers, and far infrared ranges from 15,000 nanometers to 1 million nanometers or a millimeter. Now, stuck in the middle, like ham in a sandwich, is visible light, the segment of the electromagnetic spectrum that the human eye can see. A typical human eye will respond to wavelengths from about 380 to about 750 nanometers. So each of these light bands has different properties and different human applications. So let's start with blue light and the circadian rhythm. Now blue light, once again, is a segment of the visible light spectrum between 380 and 500 nanometers. The amount of blue light in the sky varies throughout the day. However, due to the way our atmosphere scatters sunlight, blue light is particularly noticeable during the blue hours of dawn and of dusk. Now, the blue hour refers to the period of twilight in the morning and in the evening when the sun is just below the horizon. And at these times, indirect sunlight is evenly diffused and can give that sky that beautiful blue shade. A blue light, as I've described, has a specific impact on human circadian rhythm. Now, our circadian rhythm is famously associated with the sleep-wake cycle, uh, but also bears additional responsibilities. It regulates hormone production and secretion, hunger and satiety, metabolism, antioxidant production, and body temperature. Okay, so blue light specifically in this little range between 460 nanometers and 484 nanometers can set your circadian clock. Now, when humans get up in the morning, blue light radiation again enters the eye and interacts with these specialized neurons in the inferior or lower part of the retina known as intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells. Now, these sensory neurons evolved in the lower part of the retina because light from the sun is coming from above, the superior field. These cells then send a message to your body's master clock, a pair of small nuclei in the hypothalamus of the brain above the optic chiasma known as the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Now, the suprachiasmatic nucleus regulates the flow of hormones in your body across approximately a day. Specifically, it signals the pineal gland to produce and secrete the hormone melatonin at a certain time. And again, melatonin naturally induces grogginess. Now, when your eyes get blue light in the morning, your circadian clock is set such that 12 to 14 hours later, melatonin will begin to pulse through your bloodstream and round your day with a sleep. So what to do in the morning for a healthy wake sleep cycle? So the protocol is pretty simple. Within an hour of waking up, get 20 minutes of morning light outdoors. Ideally, you're up before 9 a.m., though 
This can be difficult for some shift workers, um, but do not wear sunglasses. You can just survey the scene, look into the lower portion of the sky, and of course, avoid staring at the bright ball of gas known as the sun. So blue light does not travel effectively through windows. So steep your tea, put on a jumper, and get outside. Now, a bright day with more lux might require a smaller time commitment, and an overcast day will require more patience. If natural light is not an option due to your schedule or geographic location, light therapy lamps can be used. Now, these lamps are often dubbed sad lamps as they also address uh, seasonal affective disorder that is common in winter in the farther reaches of the northern and southern hemispheres. Now, these lamps provide a measured amount of balanced spectrum light, often around 10,000 lux, and can be used to stimulate a morning light response. Now, spending 20 minutes, approximately 12 inches away from a sad light box will mimic the effect of the sun. Okay, what to do in the evening, or better really, what not to do in the evening. So it's kind of obvious, but stop looking at screens at least an hour before bedtime. Your sensory neurons in the inferior part of your retina are more sensitive to blue light at night than in the morning. Okay, so turn on blue light filters. Now, almost all computers and tablets now have a nighttime filter. Apple has a night shift which uses geolocation and sunset time data to reduce the amount of blue light that your beloved device emits. So if you can withstand the mockery of your children, I have three daughters, um, and I get mocked plenty. There are also uh, blue blocker sunglasses um, that are pretty cheap that mitigate blue light. Now, if you must binge succession, um, then try to have your eye level above the screen such that you're looking down your nose at Logan Roy. Um, now, you may already do this for moral reasons, uh, but your blue light sensitive neurons evolved in the inferior part of your retina. So while it doesn't eliminate the impact, it's better if the screen is in the inferior field, so below your eye gaze, right? Have amber lights at floor level for mid-evening peepees. <laughs> I'm 52, often get up in the middle of the night. Um, just avoid turning on a harsh overhead light, particularly an LED light uh, when nature calls. Now, while LED lights are much more energy efficient, um, than incandescent bulbs, and that's an important attribute. Um, they also produce much more blue light. So many companies now produce amber LED bulbs, which mitigate some blue light. So in general, avoid overhead lighting at night and go dim and amber. Now blackout curtains 
uh, or curtains that block overhead light are also a solid option for your bedroom. Here are some other tips for good sleep hygiene. Now try to take your last bite of food, ideally three hours before you go to bed. Now you're going to go to sleep this way with your food, mostly digested. And this really helps the body maximize its restoration and repair processes like autophagy. So keep it cool. Skylar has banished any heat at night. Um, so turn off the heat, or if you can, set your thermostat between 60 to 66 degrees Fahrenheit. Exercise. Get regular exercise. Obviously, nothing too vigorous close to bedtime is that's going to peak your cortisol levels, etc. But a good walk after dinner is great and acts as a glucose sink. Um, meditation. You know, quiet the mind as you move from the bright, busy, yang state of the day into the dark, tranquil, yin state of the night. Now, you can use the breath as um, described in many of my videos um, that can move you into your parasympathetic nervous system. A four, seven, eight pattern, for example, in which you count uh, four on the inhale, hold for seven, and exhale for eight will decrease heart rate and decrease respiratory rate and move you into a state where you're ready for sleep. And of course, yeah, unfortunately, not too much, if any, wine or beer or tequila. Okay, let's talk about infrared light and melatonin. Now, while melatonin is most celebrated as a sleep hormone, it also is a double agent. It double agents as a powerful antioxidant. Now, an antioxidant is a substance that can prevent or slow damage to cells caused by free radicals, these unruly molecules that the body makes as a product of energy creation and in reaction to toxic environmental forces. Now, when unchecked, free radicals badly damage cells and their mitochondria and can cause oxidative stress. So melatonin is a direct scavenger of free radicals and reactive oxygen species, ROS. Uh, this means it can neutralize these harmful substances and reduce oxidative stress, which is associated with aging and so many chronic diseases, including cancer, neurodegenerative diseases, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes. Now, melatonin is particularly effective in protecting mitochondria, the energy-producing parts of cells, which are particularly vulnerable to damage from free radicals. Now, melatonin can also stimulate the activity of other antioxidant enzymes like glutathione in the body, enhancing the overall antioxidant defense system. Now, we're already aware that melatonin is the hormone of darkness secreted by the pineal gland at night, but free radicals don't just operate under the cover of night. They are wreaking plenty of daytime havoc. So 
how does your body protect itself during the day? Well, it turns out that near-infrared radiation from the sun directly activates the production of melatonin at the subcellular level. Now, you cannot see near-infrared radiation, which registers between 760 and 1400 nanometers on the wave spectrum, as it's outside the parameters of visible light. But your sensory neurons can feel it as warmth, even through your shirt. The longer low-frequency wavelengths of near-infrared radiation more easily penetrate objects, just like the low-end base frequency waves of the sonic spectrum emanate out of window-tinted gold-rimmed SUVs. So infrared radiation penetrates into your body's tissues up to eight centimeters into the cells and even into your mitochondria. So why is this important? Well, your mitochondria are the energy-producing organelles in your cells that generate the energy currency known as ATP. Now, it accomplishes this through a series of highly complex operations. Now, one of the stages of energy production, the second stage, or cellular respiration, is called the Krebs cycle. Now, one of the primary byproducts of the Krebs cycle is NADH, packaged reduced electrons that subsequently zip around the inner membrane of your mitochondria, central to energy production. Now, at the end of this electron chain, there is an enzyme that catalyzes a reaction in which leftover electrons combine with oxygen to form the byproduct of water. Now, the responsible enzyme is cytochrome C oxidase, CCO. So just like hectic factories can sometimes produce defective products, the process of energy making doesn't always function to perfection and free radicals like superoxide and hydrogen peroxide are made at the mitochondrial level. Near-infrared radiation penetrates the skin and reacts with CCO. Now, this excitation stimulates the production of melatonin at the mitochondrial level. In fact, 95% of your melatonin is produced on-site in the mitochondria and is consumed locally to blunt the impacts of free radicals. It's amazing. So this melatonin, stimulated by light, is subcellular and does not enter the bloodstream. So by extension, does not make you sleepy. Now the good news is that most of the energy on Earth is in the infrared spectrum, and you don't need to be in the sun to get it. Near-infrared radiation is actually stronger when it's reflected off of leaves or grass. Being outside in green spaces, even in the shade, will upregulate the production of melatonin and in turn decrease oxidative stress. So parenthetically, while sunscreen blocks ultraviolet rays, it does not inhibit near infrared radiation from penetrating your skin. Also, the trappings of urbanity 
like buildings, concrete, hot dog stands, do not reflect near-infrared radiation light. You need green. So this interplay between near-infrared radiation light and your mitochondria might be one of the primary reasons why people who spend more time in nature have significant reduced risk of type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease, as well as less stress and lower blood pressure, as if we needed yet another reason to be in nature. Let's talk UVB, or not to be. So ultraviolet B radiation is a double-edged sword. It has both beneficial and harmful effects on the body. Thus, finding the right balance of ultraviolet B is key to health. The UVB radiation stimulates the production of vitamin D in the skin. The vitamin D is also a hormone in that it controls how cells and organs function. It's a messenger. The vitamin D is a crucial nutrient that has multiple roles in the body. It is required to absorb calcium and phosphate from the gut into the bloodstream. And these minerals are critical for the development and maintenance of healthy teeth and healthy bones. Deficiency in vitamin D can lead to a softening of the bones, a condition known as rickets in children, and long-term deficiency can contribute to osteoporosis in adults. A vitamin D is also important for maintaining muscle function. Deficiency in vitamin D can lead to muscle weakness and falls, particularly in older adults. Now, vitamin D also helps to regulate the body's inflammatory response. Research suggests that vitamin D may play a role in preventing and treating a number of conditions, including type 1 and type 2 diabetes, hypertension, glucose intolerance, and multiple sclerosis. Now, exposure to sunlight, including UVB radiation, can improve mood and alleviate symptoms of seasonal affective disorder, known as SAD. Now, there's also some evidence to suggest that vitamin D plays a significant role in mood regulation and can help ward off depression. And you might just have sensed that as a product of your direct experience. Now, vitamin D plays a significant role in the immune system. We heard a lot about it during COVID, and it affects both the innate and the adaptive immune responses. So here's a closer look at how vitamin D interacts with immune cells. So the innate immune system is the body's first line of defense against pathogens. Now immune cells in the system, such as macrophages and dendritic cells, have vitamin D receptors on them. So when these cells are exposed to pathogens, they can increase the expression of the enzyme required to convert the inactive form of vitamin D in the body 25-hydroxyvitamin D uh, to its active form. Now, once activated, vitamin D can stimulate the production of antimicrobial proteins that kill pathogens and reduce inflammation. Pretty cool. The adaptive immune system 
involves T cells and B cells that respond to specific antigens and have memory capabilities, meaning they can provide long-term protection against specific pathogens. Now, vitamin D can help to regulate the adaptive immune system, promoting a balance between different types of T cells. Now, this can help prevent an overactive immune response and reduce inflammation. Now, vitamin D can also inhibit the proliferation of B cells, which produce antibodies, and reduce the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines, which are substances secreted by immune cells that can cause inflammation. The vitamin D keeps the porridge of the immune system just right, <laughs> enhancing the body's natural defenses against pathogens, while also preventing overactive immune responses like the cytokine storms that we heard about during COVID that lead also to chronic inflammation and autoimmune diseases. So most of us enjoy a day frolicking on the beach, sunbathing, and perhaps sipping a tropical drink from a bamboo tumbler. But there are some significant cons to getting too much UVB radiation. Excessive exposure to UVB increases the risk of skin cancer, including melanoma, the most dangerous type of skin cancer. UVB radiation also accelerates skin aging, leading to wrinkles and age spots and loss of skin elasticity. UVB radiation can cause damage to the eyes, increasing the risk of conditions like cataracts and corneal sunburn. Yes, even your eyes can get sunburn along with the rest of your body, which can cause pain and skin peeling and in severe cases, blistering. So the question is, what is the proper amount of time to spend in the sun? Well, oddly, it's completely bio-individual and determined largely by how much melanin that you have. Now, melanin is the pigment responsible for the color of your skin, your hair, and your eyes. It plays a critical role in protecting the skin from the harmful effects of ultraviolet radiation from the sun. However, melanin's protective property also influences the synthesis of vitamin D in the skin, which is triggered by exposure to UVB radiation from the sun. Melanin absorbs UV radiation and dissipates it as heat, providing a natural protection against sunburn and against skin cancer. The more melanin in the skin, the darker the skin color, and the more protection there is against UV radiation. Now, while melanin's ability to absorb UV radiation protects people uh, on a skin basis from damage, it also reduces the skin's capacity to produce vitamin D. When UVB rays hit the skin, they interact with a form of cholesterol in the skin, which starts the process of vitamin D synthesis. But if those UVB rays are absorbed by melanin, fewer of them are available to start the vitamin D production process. This means that individuals with darker skin who have more melanin are at a greater risk of vitamin D deficiency if they don't get enough sun exposure. Don't consume 
uh, enough vitamin D in their diet or don't take a vitamin D supplement, for example. So this is a prime example of the trade-offs and intrinsic balances in human biology. The advantage of having more melanin is greater natural protection against sun damage and skin cancer, but the disadvantage is a higher risk of vitamin D deficiency, particularly uh, in regions with less sun exposure. Conversely, individuals with less melanin, lighter skin, can synthesize vitamin D more readily, but they are at a higher risk of sunburn and skin cancer. So, for example, if you have darker skin and live in a high latitude climate, you will almost certainly be vitamin D deficient. Of course, humans evolved with their climates. So higher concentrations of melanin, for example, in most of Africa or India was an adaptive advantage. However, through migration and other more nefarious means, the world has gotten a lot smaller and a lot more multi-ethnic. And this has led to certain evolutionary mismatches. So once again, it's about cultivating a balance. The need for sun exposure to produce vitamin D versus the risk of skin damage from the sun. So the UV index can serve as your beach time planner. You can also test to determine whether or not you have a vitamin D deficiency. The optimal levels fall between 50 to 100 nanograms per milliliter. Levels below 20 nanograms per milliliter are considered efficient. Unfortunately, supplementation of vitamin D is pretty easy and relatively cheap. The recommended daily maximum limit of vitamin D in healthy people is four to 5,000 international units. That said, it's pretty hard to overdose. Uh, vitamin D toxicity, also called somewhat ridiculously hypervitaminosis D, is a very rare um, but potentially serious condition that occurs when you have excessive amounts of vitamin D in your body. Now, humans are completely dependent on the sun. Without its electromagnetic energy, there would be no photosynthesis, and by extension, no plant growth, and animals as heterotrophs need plants for food. We also need oxygen, which is a byproduct of photosynthesis. Now, our glass great extinction 65 million years ago was caused by huge meteor crashing into the Yucatan Peninsula, and this impact triggered a nuclear winter that blocked the sun's rays and wiped out 80 to 90% of living species. So alongside this reliance, humans have also evolved with the sun. We developed these amazing adaptive mechanisms in relationship with our solar system's only star. Our circadian rhythm and our endogenous antioxidant and vitamin D production are examples of our evolutionary rapport with chemical reactions occurring 93 million miles away. It's pretty amazing. So I hope that was helpful. Thanks for listening to this episode of Commune. And please subscribe to get more videos about health and well-being. For more information on how to cultivate balance and well-being in your life, 
uh, go to onecommune.com slash trial and sign up for a free 14-day membership to Commune's course platform that features more than 120 courses with top doctors and teachers across physiological and psychological well-being. And just remember this, well-being is not a static condition. Physiological balance exists across a spectrum and is in constant flux in relation to its environment. You don't control all the elements of your ecosystem, but you do have agency. You can adopt the protocols that induce healing, the movement toward wholeness. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you. Thank you.